Good morning. Open up your Bibles, Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3. So you go back in time about a thousand years before Jesus. King David um, was really the first good king of Israel, technically the second king. And uh, since that time, Israel has been promised that there would come a king in the lineage of David who would usher in world peace, um, who would do profound things to this world in such a way that it would change our entire experience of reality. And the the Hebrews had a word for this. The word was Messiah. And as the word Messiah got translated into the Greek, it was Christ. You may not know this, but Jesus' last name was not Christ, right? It's a title. Um, His name is Jesus of Nazareth. But um, Jesus was the Christ in Greek or Hebrew. He was the Messiah. It means the anointed one. And this would be the one who would be the king of Israel, come in the lineage of David, and he would usher in global, permanent, worldwide peace, prosperity, righteousness, and holiness under his good, merciful, and benevolent rule. Doesn't that sound amazing? Um, We get to uh, the book of Revelation, and here's how the book of Revelation understands what this Messiah, this Christ, is going to do. 21 verse 4, Revelation 21 4, it says this, he, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. Can somebody give me an amen on that one? I mean, this world is insane. Look at your lives and the lives around you. It is filled with so much joy and at the same time held in tension with more heartache than we can possibly imagine. And right here, Right here in America, we are insulated from some of the greatest atrocities that happen, yes, around us, but globally through war and famine and orphans and sex slave industry. It is powerful, the sadness and the mourning and the death and the grieving, and the grieving that is happening here. And it says there's going to come a day when this Messiah, this Christ, we now know as Jesus, will come in and he will personally wipe away the tears and the pain and the mourning and the heartache, and the physical limitations, and all of these things that we experience and see on a day-to-day basis. And then it says this, for the former things have passed away. All of that junk is going to be the former things. They will be no more. They will no longer be a part of the human experience. I don't know about you, but I want Jesus to come back now if that is the future he's going to usher in. And the problem that we have is there is the promise, there is the reality, and we live in the gap. And this gap is excruciating. There are days when we busy ourselves, we numb ourselves with work and stuff and TV and whatnot, but when you really just step back and you're faced with the reality of the gap, it's crushing if you don't know what's coming, if you don't have certainty of what is inevitable. Um, when you open up the pages of the New Testament, particularly in the book of Matthew, there is a palpable sorrow and anger and angst amongst the Jewish people that if you don't know some of the context, you may not fully understand. And so as far as the 8th century BC, the nation of Israel 
was oppressed and enslaved by foreign nations, Babylon, Assyria, Greece, Rome. One by one, they came through, they murdered the Jewish people, exiled them to foreign lands. Um, They did atrocities that you and I can't even believe would happen on a scale in our day. I mean, these are powerful experiences. In over 800 years, this builds up a cultural resentment in the Jewish people, right? You thought there was resentment nowadays between what happens in Israel and the surrounding nations? I mean, this has been going on for centuries and the angst and the longing and the anticipation and the desire for the Messiah to come back and make right what oppressors have made wrong, it is, it's palpable on the pages of Scripture. Sometimes we read through it and we're just numb to some of this cultural context. And just a small illustration. In about 160 AD, there um, was a ruler, an oppressive ruler over the nation of Israel. Uh, His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And the Jews had had enough, enough of his oppression, enough of all of his evil behavior. And so they they had basically a coup called the Maccabean Revolt. And for about seven or eight years, the Jewish people had guerrilla warfare and slowly started taking back territory and pieces of what Antiochus Epiphanes um, had, had overseen and ruled. And in fact, Epiphanes was a name he gave himself which means God made visible. Antiochus Epiphanes was a narcissist who believed himself to be God in the flesh. And so the Jewish people had had enough and they revolted. And one day in about 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes said, enough. And he sent his troops into Jerusalem and he put, uh, he did things that are unspeakable from um, sacrificing a pig on the altar, um, what Daniel looks forward and calls the abomination of desolation, one of these uh, atrocities that happens in the temple. Um, He built a altar and a statue of Zeus and put it over the altar, prohibited temple worship, holidays, weekly worship and Sabbath, forbids circumcision, the sign of the covenant, which for you may not be a big deal, but socially, culturally was an enormous Enormous, enormous blow on the, on the experience of Israelites who were having babies. Destroyed all copies of Scripture. And if you were found to have a copy of Scripture, he would execute you on the spot and one thing twice about it. He hated the Jewish people. He hated them. And for years, he and others oppressed them. And it's these kind of experiences that build up this longing and frustration. And so you have a group in the first century called the Zealots. And through guerrilla warfare, they were trying to take down the evil Roman Empire who was oppressing them. And they would take them down through um, these we'll just call it guerrilla warfare, and they would win little battles at a time, but ultimately would lose. You would have the Pharisees and the Sadducees who tried to take over or gain control through political persuasion just to assuage Rome. You had the Essenes, this group of people, and they would go out into the wilderness and say, we're just going to separate ourselves from everybody and form these little monastic communities. And you can feel this tension when you open up the Bible, when you open up especially the book of Matthew, this book written for the Jewish people in a very unique way. And the book of Matthew is taking us from the birth of Jesus in chapter th- chapters 1 and 2 all the way to the public ministry of Jesus, which really begins to be launched in chapters 3 and 4. And before we get there, I want to just define hope for you because the Jewish people at this time, although many had lost hope, um, there was a group of people <clears throat> who did not lose hope. Now, for many of us, this is an English word um, that loses its oomph and its power because I hope I have pizza tonight. Um, I hope things work out. Cross your fingers, right? It's a pretty loose word. Um, but hope, I want to make this clear, hope is more than optimism. Um, optimism basically says, I'm fairly confident things are going to work out okay. Um, hope is deeper than longing. For some people, it's like, oh, I just hope this thing works out. I want it to so badly. Hope goes way deeper than longing. Hope is is very simply this. 
Hope is certain expectation. God's hope, the kind of hope that he wants you to have, it transcends our trite little experiences of hope. It transcends this desire for longing, this optimism for a better day. Um, God's hope, which he gives to every person who trusts in Jesus, is this. Without hesitation, with absolute certainty, as certain as I am that the sun will rise tomorrow, Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. Jesus, as certain as he came the first time, he will come a second time. And when he comes the second time, he will come to judge and to recreate the entire world as we know it, a new heaven and a new earth. And he will make this world without sin, without flaw, without error. Every injustice will be dealt with 100% with finality. And no person on earth will say unjust. This, uh, this injustice was left undone. Everybody will look at Jesus Christ and say, you did exactly what you said you were going to do. John the Baptist was not just the voice of optimism. He wasn't just the voice of longing. He's the central character in Matthew 3. John the Baptist was the voice of certain expectation that the Messiah was about to come back, and John was right. He did come back. And we get to Matthew chapter 3 in your notes. Um, It says this, Hope begins with. What I want to do in this message is help you see with clarity the distinction between those who have God's hope and those who don't. Those who may have longing, those who may have optimism. There's a fundamental difference between those who have God's hope and those who don't. And number one, if you want God's hope, it begins with this. It begins with repentance. Big, thick word. Let's walk through this. Chapter 3, verse 1. In those days. Those days, this is the time right before the launching of Jesus' public ministry. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And John the Baptist was related to Jesus, loved Jesus. And so here's, let me just speak to you as a preacher, okay? I would prefer when I preach that people showed up, right? You ever like planned an event, right? And you're like, I'd like people to come, right? So as a preacher, you don't prepare a message so that nobody comes. Now, as a preacher, you try to prepare a message and give it in a context that makes logical sense, okay? So the wilderness was about a day's journey away from Jerusalem in the middle of nowhere. Yes, it's next to a river, but really there's not a lot going on here, okay? And so John is like, I'm going to be a preacher, and I'm going to preach to as many people as I can because my message is one that I want a lot of people to hear. I have an idea. I'm going to make it as hard as humanly possible for these people to get to hear this message. Now, there's a lot of interesting context here, but I want you to notice this. What John is doing is he's not giving an easy message in an easy place. He's giving a hard message, and those who want to hear the message have to travel to go hear it. Isn't that interesting? It's a little counterintuitive. You think he's kind of just like right outside the church, and and people walk out, and they're just kind of hearing him, and maybe he's in the middle of the city. No. John goes pretty far away, and then he gives this message. Here's what he says. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there are, there are two ways to say this. You could be like hellfire and brimstone, which I think a lot of people read into John, which I don't probably think is the most likely given what's going on. But he is being crystal clear and explicit. And let's be honest. Have any of you ever had somebody come up to you and say, repent? <laughs> okay, so when they do, here's what goes on inside of you. Who do you think you are? <laughs> right? Am I the only one? Come on, Bill Church, right? right? 
When you are called out on something with that level of clarity, it wells up inevitably pride and defensiveness. I think in most people, and here's why this message was so hard, I think, for most people to receive. Because number one, um, repentance implies that you have failed God. Repentance implies that you have not measured up to an expectation that he has. And that's pretty hard to hear. I mean, if somebody came up to you and said, you have failed God, those are, those are hefty words, right? And immediately you would say, who are you to judge me? And yet here's what the scripture says. This message can be given to every single living person other than Jesus himself, because every person, the preacher included, has failed God and fallen short of the expectations that he has laid out. And so this is a message that is not, I get to give it to you because you're worse than me. This is a message for every single living person. Number one, repentance says this, you have failed. And number two, it says this, your failure is not a one-time event. It's an ongoing experience of rebellion. Repent is a hard word to hear. If someone comes up to you and says repent, they're telling you this, you have not just made one mistake, you are making the same mistake over and over again without sorrow, and you need to change right now, which is what repent really means. It means change. But the word lands hard, but then he gives them a motivation. If I look at you and I say, repent, your question to me legitimately could be, why? Who cares? Yeah, sure, God said he was going to do X, Y, and Z. But you know what? The distance between the promise and the fulfillment, it's been a really long time. And I'm starting to really doubt whether or not God can be taken at his word. And so here's what he says. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's what he says. The Messiah, the Christ, is about to start, inaugurate the kingdom of heaven on earth. And when this thing happens, when the Messiah, when the Christ comes back, you need to be prepared. And the good Jewish person, here's what they're going to say. I read the Torah. I read the Bible. I go to synagogue. I do a lot of good works. I am doing all the things that you say I'm supposed to do. And the message of John the Baptist preparing for Jesus, the message of Jesus is, I appreciate all your external deeds. But your external deeds do not resolve the fundamental problem of the human condition, which is your heart and your guilt before a holy God. So yes, you've cleaned up the outside, but now you need to clean up the inside. And I appreciate how good you look. I appreciate how much you give, but that will not make you right with God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah is about to come. And when he comes, you need to be prepared. And the only way to be prepared for the Messiah is to have your heart made right with him. And the American Christian or non-Christian says this, okay, then what good works do I have to do to accrue this? And we say this every week, but this is the lie that every American by his hook, line, and sinker, if you grew up in this culture, that good people go to heaven. And that's not the rule of the Bible. The rule of scripture is that good people go to hell, forgiven people get to go to heaven. That's a fundamental difference because culturally anybody who's good, the Bible says there is, before God, there's no one good. Not even one. There's no one righteous. And in a culture that says you're good, the Bible and culture tell us two totally different messages. And that's really hard for a lot of people to hear. That's why I don't think John's method with dealing with most people it's just to be like, rah, hellfire and brimstone. He's going to get hellfire and brimstone. We're going to see that, but not, I believe, in the masses. And he compels them. He says, look, 
your Messiah, your Christ is coming back, and he's going to look first and foremost at what is going on in here. And let your external righteousness be the overflow of what God is doing in your heart. Because what you do on the outside does not make you right on the inside. And yet we live in a world where we say, if I do right on the outside, then I must be okay on the inside. It says, repent. They had prepared externally, but not internally. Now, verse 3. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make paths his straight. 700 years before John shows up, there was a promise that there would be a, a preacher who would be in the wilderness and who would have a message to help God's people prepare for the coming Messiah. And again, that message is get right inside so you can be prepared when the Messiah comes and you have to stare him in the face. Now, in verse 4, this is where it gets interesting. We get a little bit of insight into John. He's kind of kooky. He says this, Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Anybody want that preaching job? Anyone to be the pastor of that church? Not me. Uh, it was interesting I was reading this because, um, uh, do, here's my warning to you. Don't read into this as a political statement because it's not. It's just more of a humorous like, insight. Um, John the Baptist reminds me a lot of Donald Trump. Um, he looked funny. He did weird things. He said offensive things. At first, nobody in the establishment, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Romans, they took him seriously. Like, there's this kook out in the wilderness preaching this message. The crowds unexpectedly started resonating with this message. They started going far and wide to meet this guy in the wilderness. And we're going to see the extent of these crowds. And they realized Rome did, first the Pharisees and the Sadducees did, and ultimately Rome did when they killed him, realizing that this guy and his message wasn't going away. Uh Uh-oh, we're in a big trouble here. Now, don't read into anything I'm saying about Donald Trump. I'm just saying it's an interesting analogy, right? I'm not saying he's good or bad or anything of the sorts because then there would be a coup again, and uh, I'm not going to do that. I just was reading that. I'm like, hey, he's kind of like Donald Trump. Crazy. Um, Four things are happening here that I would like to just draw your attention to. Number one, Matthew, who wrote this, uh, obviously because it's the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew's telling the reader with clarity something that for the American mind does not make sense to you, but it's true, and you've got to know this if you're going to read the Bible smartly, um, that John the Baptist is the fulfillment that Elijah, the prophet from the Old Testament, would come back. And so there was this promise that Elijah one day, this prophet who um, prepared the people for God and for the Messiah, was going to come back, and he was going to prepare again. And so what Matthew is trying to communicate to you is that, yes, the spirit of Elijah would be coming back, and John the Baptist is fulfilling this. In 2 Kings 1.8, it simply says this, Elijah wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. Now, some of you may be thinking, um, did John, John the Baptist just wake up one day? And he's like, oh, I'm like dressing like Elijah. Oh, I'm in the wilderness preaching. Oh, go crazy, go figure, right? Hear me. John the Baptist chose the location of his preaching, his message, his clothing, and his food with intentionality to communicate to everybody he was preaching to exactly what he was doing and who he was. 
John the Baptist had no identity crisis in understanding that the spirit of Elijah prophesied hundreds of years past was on him, and he had a mission to dress like him, talk like him, go to the wilderness, and preach his message. He knew with clarity what his job was. And in this culture, everybody knew what his food and what his clothing communicated. Number two, the text wants you to get this. Elijah was promised to to preach and to proclaim right before the Messiah was going to come back. So I don't know if you know this, but the last book in the English Old Testament is the book of Malachi. You're so smart. Nobody said anything. It's great. You're geniuses. And the last two verses in the last book of the the English Old Testament um, is a promise that Elijah, the spirit of Elijah, is going to come back and prepare the way for the Lord. In Luke 1, 16, it says this, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. This is going to be one of the first things that whoever preaches in the wilderness and the spirit of Elijah is going to do. He's going to look at these people who have been far from God. They might be close to God externally, but in their hearts, they have not been made right with God. And he's going to draw God's people back to themselves. He's going to help them prepare their hearts, not just their externals. So your house looks great for Christmas. That's adorable. But is your heart prepared to meet Jesus? That's what's essential. He says this, He will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Not only... Do we get prepared by reconciling with God? But once we're reconciled with God, then families are reconciled back to each other. The power of those who trust in Jesus Christ is not just vertical reconciliation, it's horizontal reconciliation. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Hear this. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared And here's my question. Are you prepared? I'm not asking, are you prepared for Christmas Day? I'm asking, are you prepared for the point of Christmas, which is this. There was a first advent. There was a first arrival. There was a first coming. And we celebrate Christmas to look back, but then also with expectation, confident expectation to look forward. Just as certain as he came the first time, just as certain as tomorrow morning the sun will rise, we are just as certain that Jesus Christ will come And are you prepared, not externally, but are you prepared internally? The third thing this text wants you to get is that when Jesus comes, he will inaugurate his kingdom. He will inaugurate his kingdom. It will start as a mustard seed, and it will grow, and in one way or another will expand until he wins. You want to be on Jesus' side. You want to be reconciled because he is the victor. Number four, and I think most importantly, the only way the only way to prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ, to prepare for the kingdom of heaven to be fully initiated on earth, is repentance. Repentance is simply this. It is a confession of sins and a turning away. And so I want to just look at you, whoever you are, and I want to talk to you if you've never trusted in Christ, and I want to say, have you gone before God and confessed your sin to him? Have you gone before him and said, I am a sinner? Now, the implication here is that it's not just, yes, I'm acknowledging I'm wrong. You're acknowledging that you have sinned against God, number one. And number two, because Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise, you are acknowledging that you believe that he died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the dead. And until you believe in Jesus Christ, 
You may be optimistic. You may be longing, but you will never have confident expectation. And what God wants to give you today is optimism and longing that's fulfilled in confident expectation. Number two, hope begins with identification. This may sound like a weird word to use. Um, we have regularly symbols of identification. So I am married to Brianne Fueling. The symbol of my um, identification with her is my wedding ring. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what is the external symbol of the inward relationship that you have with him? It is baptism, right? Isn't that interesting? So this whole, this whole experience is going to culminate in a baptism, which we're going to have some baptisms here in a little bit. We had two in the 9 a.m. Very excited for um, our 11 a.m. baptisms. And uh, verse 5 says this, Then Jerusalem, which is a fairly big city at the time, and what's that word? Three letters? All. The first service didn't say anything. Like, I'm like, can you read? All right. <laughs> then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. He did not pick an ideal place to preach, but let me tell you, people were flocking to go hear John the Baptist because he resonated with something inside of them. They realized, I am not okay. Look at my life. Look at the trail of damage around me. Yes, I'm religious. Yes, I'm spiritual. Yes, I do these religious things. Yes, other people look at me and say, you're a good person. You're better than most, but there's something instinctual inside of us that says God and I are not okay, which is why almost every civilization and culture over the past millennia have all had some kind of expectation and understanding that God and I are not okay. And don't get me wrong, they tried to make it right and dement it in perverse ways, but almost every culture intuitively understands that there is a gap between God and I, and it needs to be resolved. And every other religion and culture on the planet says, resolve that gap by being good or doing ridiculous things. And Christianity, biblical Christianity, is the only one that says the gap will never be resolved Jesus, he entered into humanity, resolved the problem for you in your place, received the gift. And then we Americans, we say, well, what do I have to do to get the gift? And he's like, duh, I just told you, receive it. There's nothing you can do to earn it. You'll never have enough money to buy it. Your debt is far too big. It's free. Take the gift. That's all. Receive it. Believe. Believe. And then the result of your belief is this. People who believe open up the Bible, and the Bible says, believe and be baptized. Now, does baptism save you? The answer is no. Please say no. no. Baptism is not magical. Like, there's not like this like, crazy thing that happens in the water, and then it's like you know, some Disney movie and all this crazy stuff. It's not what it is. Baptism is an external symbol of the internal reality. Baptism says this, I confess that I am a sinner. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and my place and that God raised him from the dead, proving that payment was accepted. I am all in. And I will fail miserably. And when I fail miserably, the voice of condemnation will not rule over my life. I will believe God's word that every sin, past, present, and future, was nailed to the cross with finality. I am secure. So we get all these couples. You have a Christian husband and a non-Christian wife, a Christian wife and a non-Christian wife. I mean, you, you see this, right? And so the, one of the spouses becomes a Christian. And the non-Christian inevitably says, you call yourself a Christian and you act like this. When somebody comes to Christ, does that mean they're going to be a good person right away? No. Does that mean they're going to like ship up and ship out and they're going to get all the dirt and baggage and PTSD and brokenness and pain from 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years of a wounding, painful, difficult life and all of a sudden they're going to be the best husband or wife on the planet? No, I didn't get baptized. I didn't trust in Jesus Christ because he has made me now in a snap a good person. I trusted in Jesus Christ because I am a sinner, because my heart is broken. 
Because even as I trust in him and as he starts to reshape my heart, it takes years or decades. If I lived for a thousand years, my heart would still not be fully healed with the spirit of Christ in me. Which is why ultimately he gives us brand new bodies that get rid of this body of sin when he comes back. So I tell people all the time, when someone gets baptized, when they come to Christ, expect them to still make massive mistakes because they, for the rest of their lives, will have to deal with this body of flesh. Repentance, true repentance, this confession of sin and trusting in Christ, will culminate eventually in water baptism. Why? Because if you have the Spirit of God and the Word of God tells you to do something, you do it. Now, for the, for the first century believers, baptism was a huge deal. The reason was because to be a Christian was to be a part of a revolution, to be a part of a coup, to be a part of a resistance against the injustice of the religious system of the Jews, to be um, adverse to Rome and what they stand for. You're, you told Caesar that you're not the pinnacle God. Jesus is the king of kings, right? To be a Christian was to put a mark on yourself, and to be publicly baptized was a significant moment. You got baptized, and you said I was all in. In America, we just grow up, and we go to people's baptisms. They're infant baptisms. They're this, they're this, whatever. And baptism is like a cultural thing we do, and we don't really understand the weight of what it means. And so we look at these baptisms, and we say, look, we have to get your brain out of this idea that it's just a cultural notion of spirituality. This is a public declaration of my sin, God's faithfulness, and then I am all in despite my struggles and my failures. It's a huge declaration that we we get to make. Now, we have those who have hope. Hope only comes, God's hope, with trusting in Jesus Christ, and that's it. But there is a whole other spectrum of this, which is the hopeless. And if you have never experienced Um, God's hope, it's because you've never trusted in Jesus. You may have optimism, you may have longing, but it's very different what God offers. And the opposite is hopeless. Hopelessness, if you look in your notes, it ends in legalism. And here's why we say this. Legalism is any law that I follow other than God's law. Um, Any rules that I put in motion and set into place other than what God's law says to do. And once you have this rule or this law, what you do is you begin to judge other people by this law. But if it's not God's law, it is wrong. And that's one of the hardest things for people to understand. If you're an atheist, um, you are functionally God. You make the laws that you agree with. If you're basically just, uh, you know, a part of this culture, you're not very thoughtful in terms of your morality and ethics, culture is your law. They are your God, and you blindly follow um, the traditions, the expectations, the ethics, the morals of what the pop culture machine has put out for you that day. If you're a Muslim, your law is the Quran. The problem with all these laws is that if they are not God's law, They are wrong, and they fall short, and they create legalists out of each one of us. Many people live with a false hope because we build this law, we build these rules, we build these systems, and then we pour our lives into it only to realize that it has nothing to do and no effect on our standing with God. The only thing that can change your standing with God is to follow his law, and his law says this, trust in Jesus. You can't be good enough. That is the first thing. There's a story in the book of John where these people come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, what good works must we do to be saved? Basically, what law do I follow? And here's what he says. Here's the good work that you should do to be saved. Believe. Trust. Stop working. Hopelessness ends in legalism. We get to verse 7. Look at your notes. When he, John the Baptist, he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, pay attention to these words, coming to his baptism. Did the Pharisees and the Sadducees get baptized? The answer is 
No. They created their own system of laws that were extra biblical. They weren't God's laws. They stood observing the masses coming to this crazy John the Baptist, and they stood in judgment and legalism and condemnation over these Jews, over these people, not realizing that these people were doing the things that actually prepared them to meet the Messiah. They were making right their heart, not their externals. And so John has some really, really harsh words. This is when he gets hellfire and brimstone. I really hope no one ever has to say this to me, but here we go. He says to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath wrath to come? What does a viper do? It bites you, it injects poison into you, and that poison ultimately kills you. Here's what he says. You are biting people, injecting them with poison, and they're dying as a result of you. And the wrath of God is coming after you. Isn't that powerful? This is not the message he preaches, by the way, to the masses, is it? Do you see a different message? To the masses, it's you've fallen short of God's glory. Trust in God. Prepare yourself. He's coming. For the religious elites, for these people, he looks at them and says, you are a brood of vipers. You are killing people. In your wake are dead spiritual bodies all over the place, and you think they're alive because they're following meticulously these rules and laws they've set up. All it does is make them legalists, and these law-abiding citizens have no right standing before God because God has to make right the heart before he makes right all the externals. He says, you brood of vipers who warned you of the threat of the wrath to come. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And I really believe this fruit is the act of actually getting your heart right with God. He says, do the things that people who are right with God do. They follow God's law. And it starts with you confessing your sins to God from your heart. And he says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Some of you, you grew up in a Christian home. Your great-grandpa, your great-grandma, your grandparents, your parents were believers. You spent your entire life going to church, and you think you and God are okay because of something external you did or the heritage you received. And the Bible just obliterates all other excuses that we have. And he basically says this, I don't care whose family you're born into. I don't care how good you've been. I don't care what people say about you. I don't care how bad you've been. You can be made right with God today, now, by trusting in him. Ultimately, hopelessness ends in separation. Now, I want to, I want to read this to you and I want to make a point. I'll make it a point and then read it. Jesus and John, and the disciples. They can get very harsh, but there is, I think exclusively, one category of people that they get harsh to. Religious leaders who, in the name of God, preach a false gospel. There is no patience for these people. You will read in Scripture, Jesus never mouths off to Roman authorities. Um, He does not treat with contempt or derision anybody other than one group of people, religious people who in the name of God preach a false gospel and lead people astray. So I'm going to be straight with you. I talk to all different kinds of people, people who are all over the place spiritually. Um, I know this. I can never make you believe anything. I want to be a part of helping your journey, helping you get to where you need to be. My desire for you is that you would know Jesus, but I'm smart enough to know I'm not going to make anybody believe. And what I can do is help you understand what God's word says. I can encourage you. I will love you no matter what you believe or don't believe. My love for you is not contingent on you meeting my expectations of belief or maturity. Uh, I can navigate humanity fine, but there's one group 
group of people that I can look back on a number of circumstances in my life and I have ripped them to shreds. And I'll tell you one group who it is. It is people who proclaim a false gospel. There are a number of pastors I've had very hard discussions with. And I've had to look at them and I have said some very stern and difficult things to them because in the name of Jesus, they preach a false gospel and lead people astray. When I find and I'm talking to a pastor one-on-one who is telling people that God wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy, and if you're not, it's because of sin in your life, me and that pastor, we're going to have some serious words. But to everyone who's believed that message, my heart goes out and my compassion is filled to the roof that you've been in that context. But I'll tell you, Jesus, he does not speak with that level of condescension, nor does John the Baptist to anybody except this religious elite who are leading people astray with the false gospel. But John, here's what he says. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Okay, who's the tree that's going to get chopped down? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious elites who are leading people astray, for sure. Who's got the axe? God. He's about to come back and he's going to chop this tree down. And he says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the fruit right here now is fruit of repenting and trusting in Jesus Christ. And then he says, his winnowing fork, verse 12, is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's interesting. This kind of language is reserved for, the, for those kind of people. But to the masses, he does. He preaches a different tone and a different way, and he looks at them and he says, now is the time to come to Jesus. I want to close and read um, verse 11. And uh, I love this. It says this. I baptize you with water for repentance. Is there any magic in the water? Everybody say no. No. The power is in the repentance, the confession of sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. He says, I I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I love this. John understood his preaching, my preaching, your preaching, your proclamation. It is not about you. It is not about your platform. It is about you pointing people to Jesus who is the point. And he gets this. He says, whose sandals, I'm not even worthy to carry, but here's what he's going to give you. And this is what he compels them with. If somebody says, why, why should I come to Jesus? Number one, because he's coming back and he's coming soon. But number two, listen to this. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. God himself will enter you and the fire will refine you and transform you. If you want God and you, and you want to be transformed by God, this is what he offers. And he says, you got to do this now because the kingdom of heaven, it's at hand. You might be here, and again, every, every week, there are people all over the board spiritually wrestling through different things. And I just want to look at you, and I want to say to you, Jesus is extending free, very expensive, free, merciful, gracious forgiveness to you despite how terrible you may or may not have been. And he is offering it to you not if you do good things, not because you're here, but anybody who will confess their sins before him and trust him for salvation. And if that is something that you want to do today, my prayer for you is that God would show himself with absolute clarity. He doesn't play games And that maybe today would be the first day that you realize, I have made my externals a little bit better, but if Jesus came back today in his second advent, my heart is not prepared to meet him. 
what I so appreciate about our God is he does not say, okay, here's 14 rules and laws that you have to do to get your heart all cleaned up, right? Here's what he says. Trust me. Ask me to forgive you. And with finality and with totality, you will be forgiven. If that's a decision you want to make, I want to invite you. I'm very serious about this. I want to invite you. Come talk to myself, anybody on this stage. We will not judge you. Even if you're not ready and you have questions, we do not believe we can transform your heart with our words or convince you to have faith. What we do believe is that we can help answer questions and help you figure out what some of those next steps are before you're willing to really trust in Christ. What I love is even while we're praying, you can trust in him. You can go before him and say, I am sorry, will you forgive me? Even in your head, God hears everything and knows everything. And his promise to you is that if you trust in Jesus, he will give you the Holy Spirit and he will refine you with fire, which means he will transform you. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, I am overwhelmingly aware of even just my own frailty and sin, all the things that I lack. Lord, there's a part of me, just as a typical American, that wants to try to buy my way into heaven, that wants to be good enough. And even though your word keeps telling me I'm secure and I'm loved and your love for me is not go up or down with my good or bad behavior, but God, there's something inside of me just culturally that fights that and says, have I been good enough? Have I been good enough? But God, I know that that is something that resonates with so many people in this room. And God, your word declares we have never been good enough, but you were good enough for us. And yes, we should be condemned, but you were condemned for us. And now there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. God, as we celebrate these baptisms and what they symbolize, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for taking on your body and your soul and your emotions, our punishment in our place, and for reconciling us back to you. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.